0: You're listening to The Dworkin Report. I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. Today on the show, I have a person that needs no introduction. Martin Luther King III. I am uh, honored that he'd take the time to speak with me. Uh, He's become just an outspoken advocate for everything. Uh, Really amplifying everything that's going on. But, you know, in this interview... He opens up in regards to what's really going on, and the passion, and the fire, everything that he talks about is so on point. Here's my interview with Martin Luther King III. I'm here with global civil and human rights activist Martin Luther King III. Mr. King, thank you for joining me today. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Now, there's so much I wanted to ask you about today. Obviously, limited time, but but first, I I need to ask you about uh, Jacob Blake. Mr. Blake is a Wisconsin resident who walked away from two police officers and, as a grainy video plainly shows, was then shot in the back multiple times by Kenosha police officers. It's one of the most disturbing videos, at least that I've seen of its kind, since the George Floyd video. Um, This is a terrible tragedy, and it begs the most difficult question I, I could probably ask you, um, why why does this keep on happening where police are murdering, uh murdering innocent black people when the officers are plainly not in fear for their lives or and how do we as a society maybe fix this pervasive problem?
1: You know, that is a, a, a multi million dollar question that should be very easy to answer. Um and I don't know today that I have the answer. The first thing I must say is You know, the the system is beyond broken as it relates to black folk uh, and also communities of color, because clearly we don't see this kind of behavior happening uh, in in other communities. So for whatever reason, there is something going on in the minds of officers um, that is 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 not legitimate, but it is something that they feel and one of some of the ways or one of the ways that that can be addressed it's not just training that it is training that's a that's a part of it uh, because again if this is was happening in all communities then we would have to say okay policemen have really got to change their total mechanism of, of training we used to apprehend suspects in America without anyone being hurt or at least not significantly hurt. Um, In the case of of this particular case, and and maybe the facts are still all coming out, I mean, it's unconscionable what we all saw. And this is why people all over the world are saying Black Lives Matter, because it it appears that they don't. Again, as I said, if we saw this behavior universally with everyone, uh, we would still need to address it. But specifically as it relates to communities of color and black folk, policemen are going to have to operate differently. Now, when you talk about solutions, it almost is at the point where in the African-American community, where last year black people in the nation spent over a trillion dollars, maybe we have to look at a technique that my father and his team used, which is, Stop investing in this economy. I mean, literally, uh, when you look at the major corporations, and of that trillion dollars, I guarantee you, blacks uh, in a significant way helped to make the margin of profit for many of these corporations. And if black folk decided, okay, we're going to stop exercising our buying power, those corporations will come and join us to help us address this situation in a constructive way. Uh, for the good of the whole community. And it is, this is, I mean, this is beyond tragic. And even after we saw George Floyd, you would hope that that was a wake-up call. Uh, But it obviously has not changed much. Policemen still conduct themselves as it relates to black people and the black community the same way that they always have. And they will say it was fear. They will say, oh, well, you know, my life was, in fear he didn't obey what i said again there are constructive ways to apprehend a suspect without shooting him and certainly or her or without them it, it becoming fatal that is that that is unbelievable
0: absolutely and there's obviously a big issue that i've seen lately that hasn't gotten enough coverage on racial equality our listeners might not be seeing enough about in the press but it's really important African Americans are dying coronavirus epidemic in this country at a far higher rate than their share of population. Can you tell our listeners why that's happening, and if there's anything they can do politically to promote racial equality in our health system?
1: Yes, yeah, certainly, as it relates to racial equality around our health system, and why in communities of color and the African American community always disproportionately has uh, far bigger challenges than society in general part of that is specifically around the issue of health care african-american uh health care in general we you know we we have uh the affordable care act some would call it obamacare which uh was helping people to be insured to be able to get health care but oftentimes in black communities the the, the it's it's everything from diabetes to uh, hypertension to obesity. Uh, in the African-American community, those numbers are, are, are really higher than other communities. And part of that is because of the lack of access to health care. So what we got to do is, that's why it's so important for us to vote uh, in every election. That's why it's important for us to change the Senate. It's not so much the House, quite frankly, the United States of House of Representatives has passed many things to date. In fact, they're uh, talking about uh, and debating and are going to fund the post office because the post office and the postal service is going to need be needed uh, for ballots that are going to be cast by mail that the administration or the president is against. But my point is this: when it comes to health care, you know, when it comes to Medicaid. Uh, and Medicare and expansion, many of the states have decided they did not want to engage in that expansion. And therefore, it hurts people who are on fixed incomes, who are not able to work, although they've been trying to get jobs. And it always disproportionately affects the African-American community and communities of color. And so that's why everyone who can, again, I can't say enough why it's important for us to cast our votes why it's important for us to even change uh, those who are the majority in the united states senate when more of us vote then we elect different people to office who understand and will represent and make sure that everyone is included and no one is excluded right now we have a form of government that really excludes so many and particularly black and poor people are excluded That is unacceptable in the nation that purports to be the wealthiest nation on the planet. We have multi-trillion dollar economies, even though our economy is bad for us today, it still is a multi-trillion dollar economy. During this pandemic, banks have gotten two or three trillion dollars more that have been infused into the banks. While we say, oh, the economy is bad, people are not working. Well, somebody has money that they're putting in banks. And so why not begin to use that money. And I don't mean specifically take that money out of banks. I mean, use the revenue that can be generated from that money to help infuse communities where these disparities are, where these challenges are. We can do this. We just have to have leadership for it to happen. And it will not happen under this current administration, under President Trump, nor under Republican rule. They have demonstrated they have no interest in that. But yet, If you go to the House side, where Democrats are in charge, you are seeing these bills being passed every day. But then in the Senate, the uh, the majority leader, Mr. McConnell, won't even allow them to come to the floor. And I don't mean to be personal. I I don't. I'm just talking about policy. Everything should be allowed to be voted on, and at this particular point, it is not.
0: Absolutely. And you've personally met with the current occupant of the Oval Office a few days before inauguration. You met. Trump at his transition offices, uh, was it difficult to do? And did you learn anything from that meeting that we need to know before the election upcoming?
1: Uh, No, no, I won't say I learned anything. But what I will say is I believe that it is imperative that there be some kind of dialogue with whomever is the president of the United States. Uh, Nine out of ten things, maybe even ten out of ten, but nine out of ten things, I do agree that President Trump has done a little something about criminal justice reform, but just about everything else, I disagree with what he's done on on most of those issues. But here's my point. When my father was in leadership, he met with all the presidents who were in the White House at that time. In the late 50s, it was a Republican president, President Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon. He met with President Kennedy and President Vice President Johnson. He met with President Johnson and Vice President Humphrey. And I've met every occupant of the White House president within, in, in the Oval Office, President Carter, uh, President Ford, President, uh, president Clinton, uh, President, of course, Obama, and both President Bushes. I've had the opportunity to meet in the White House with every president, either with my mom and with other leadership. And I've been to the White House many times. In the last three and a half years, I have not been to the White House. I met with President-elect Trump before the election on an issue around voting, because I knew, if you think about it right now, we're dealing with these same issues, that voter suppression. And so I met with him to try to get him to hear the fact that we need to make it possible for everybody in our nation to vote. Four years later, three and a half years later, we're having this same issue that I was meeting with him on. And he claimed at that time that we're going to have a meeting once I'm elected in the overall office. That never happened because there was no interest in the voters being suppressed. He talked about voter fraud, created a voter fraud commission that is now defunct because there is no fraud for the most part. And I would say there really is no fraud in elections in the United States of America, but that is always who he's been. But again, I always believe you have to find ways to get issues to those in power. He is supposed to be the president of the United States of America, which means he's supposed to represent and at least hear everyone. Policy-wise, he may not always agree. And in this case, he's shown that the masses of people are not that important to him at all. So the masses of Americans must raise their voices and cast their votes And hopefully another person will be elected to presidency and others will be elected to the United States Senate so that at least the legislation can get a hearing.
0: Absolutely. And this Friday marks a big anniversary. It's the 12th anniversary of your speech introducing the now revered President Barack Obama at the DNC, uh, which happened on the 45th anniversary of your father's I have a dream speech. You didn't have to endorse Barack Obama. I used to work for him. I worked for him at that point. Uh, In politics, nothing is given. What did the president, President Obama, do to earn your respect and, and your warm words back then?
1: First of all, when President Obama first began running, it was the message that he was running on, which was hope and optimism, and he was talking about bringing the nation together so that we could deal with all of these tough issues, so that ultimately he was able to get, through hard work, an affordable care piece of legislation passed that some call Obamacare that provided health care for all, uh, he was able to get uh, a number of issues addressed that did not address that were, had not been addressed, including issues around the LGBTQ community. so he was addressing issues now that, that before he ran, he talked about hope and optimism, and yes, we needed that, just as today we need it again, because we have a current occupant in the White House who has done all he can to divide our nation, done all he can to to segregate our nation. And that is not good, as well as to offend leaders globally around the world. We are not an island. We are one nation of many, and we have to work with everyone around the world to create and to foster democracy if that's what we say we're going to do. But we cannot do it by segregating ourselves and uh, associating ourselves and uh, creating bad relationships with other heads of state. And that's what this administration seems to have done. President Obama was a bridge builder. This administration is basically not a bridge builder, but they're building walls to separate and segregate people. And so... You know, it was very easy for President, in in a sense, I mean, today now I say, for me to embrace what he represented. Um, And it's easy also, I would have to say, to embrace what uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are presenting as well. Because, as I said, I think when you talk about the pandemic, when you talk about 30 million people plus who are unemployed, and some may not ever get jobs back in the areas where they were working. When you talk about violence all across our nation in many communities, uh, it's going to take us coming together. These are not issues that you can address in a divided way. It's just not going to work. It has to be addressed at a much higher level. And part of what my father's philosophy of nonviolence was was to teach us how to live together without destroying personal property. It was to teach us how to uh, how to embrace the best of our society, to create a, a greater and a more just and a more noble and a more perfect uh, union. And that can only be done when people are willing to work together. It cannot be done as the leadership that has existed over the last three and a half years has done which has created division, which has created not hope. And maybe some people feel hopeful. I'm not really sure how you do in all this chaos. In fact, Dad wrote a book. His last book was entitled, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? I vote for community. It feels like we're in chaos right now, but ultimately we must create community if we're going to sustain our nation and ourselves. And we will never be able to do it as long as policemen are shooting people down like they're, they're animals. Um, we will never be able to do it as long as racists are rearing their ugly heads and, and Nazis and all these kind of groups that really do not represent, that represent the worst of what America is. America is far better than the behavior we're exhibiting. And yet the only way that happens is it has to happen. Leadership has to exemplify that. And unfortunately, the current person in the White House does not have the capacity to exhibit that. And therefore, he must be removed by the vote, only by the vote. Voting has to remove him. And that's why I want to constantly encourage everyone to cast their votes in the November election of this year.
0: And I I want to ask you about Biden, but I do, uh, I guess I want to ask you about Kamala Harris first. Uh, What are are your thoughts about her her nomination for the vice presidency?
1: I think that uh, Senator Harris's nomination, Senator Kamala Harris's nomination, uh, was um, a very good nomination uh, that the the vice president, I think, chose uh, one of the the most uh, astute one of the most, um, I think, vocal uh, and outstanding leaders in the United States Senate for moving the nation forward. And, you know, there were a number. He had a number of candidates to choose for, but I think he chose, I think that that, uh, Senator Harris's nomination was, was, was very good. There may be some who have problems with her being a prosecutor, But I would raise the question, and and many have said, well, she prosecuted a lot of African Americans. Well, the job of prosecution is to prosecute those who uh, cases are brought before the attorney general for those who have broken the law. And, of course, they should be innocent until proven guilty, and the state has the objective of proving that. And then, of course, there's defense. So my my point is this. That's what the job warranted. Um, You know, I I don't want to get into the issues of whether there was over-prosecution of Blacks or some might. Uh, I think that under the circumstances, the job was done, and it was done in an admirable way. But I also think that as a United States senator, uh, she has transitioned to—she transitioned once she became a senator— and has, as, as, as when it comes to uh, raising questions, the inquisitions of those who come before the judicial committee, you know, the positions that she has taken, I think have been the right positions, and I think that's the right leadership for this time, right now. We always can make things more perfect, but this is, this is today. What we're looking at is what exists right now, and when you add and look at what exists between the current administration, the kind of judicial appointments that are being put before the United States Senate and those who are going on the federal bench for life, there's a dramatic difference in those who are going before the bench right now. Many of them, even the, the committees, the legal committees who make judgment on other colleagues have said that these women and men who've been appointed, many of them are not qualified, but yet they've still been confirmed because of a political agenda to appoint ultra-white-wing folks. And I, I'm not against ba- balance. In other words, I think that there, should maybe, there should be some conservative judges, but there also be need to be some progressive judges. And at this point, we're only appointing those who are ultra-conservative, and many of them may not have even had the capacity and, and yet As I said, the legal review has said these people are not qualified. But Senator Harris has been on the right side of all of those issues, in my judgment, in terms of trying to get different people who will become federal judges. And as a vice president working with a president, Biden, uh, I'm sure that that agenda will be uh, pushed forward.
0: And what's what's your thoughts about Biden being the nominee for president?
1: I think that Vice President Biden, again, is the right candidate for this time. I think that his leadership is, has been studied. Um, has he made mistakes? Of course, there have been things that he could have done differently. But he is the nominee of the Democratic Party, and he is light years different from what we have today. And so in that regard, I believe that the community needs to support this candidacy. Uh, I do believe that we will be able to talk to, like I was able to talk to President-elect Trump, but nothing that I said seemed to make any sense to him. He decided he's not going to do anything about the issue. I believe we can talk to a President Biden and a Vice President Harris And I believe these issues will be addressed. I believe we can exert pressure so that, particularly if we elect them, so that these issues will be addressed.
0: Right. I've got one final question for you. This is a doozy sort of, but you've heard this before, I'm sure, as I've heard in other interviews you've done. Uh, So as we speak today, a prominent civil rights fighter on the other side of the world is fighting for his life in a German hospital, speaking about Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny who Vladimir Putin apparently potentially poisoned. Uh, He's 44 years old. Your father was only 39 years old when his life was stolen from your family and our nation by political violence. Recently, there's been political violence by Donald Trump's federal army against Black Lives Matter protesters and new era pro-Trump hate groups like the Proud Boys as well as neo-Nazi gangs like we saw in Charlottesville. What do you think uh, your father would have to say about the political violence and frankly, the unthinkable sort of dystopia which our weary nation has suffered for, for these last four years?
1: So I, I think my father, number one, often said that riots are the language of the unheard. So he never condoned violence. But he understood why sometimes people were pushed up against the wall and would engage in violence. You know, I think this last uh, shooting, Um, The tragic shooting that happened in Wisconsin is uh, a situation where, you know, people are saying, look, we we saw George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds, an officer uh, exhibit inhumane treatment. And the the lifeblood of this man, we saw it just leave his life. I mean, (laughs) I don't I don't even know what you say about this kind of behavior. But my higher point is that, you know, when you keep a person victimized, and I'll say, Victor Hugo used to say that wherever there's darkness, crimes will occur. But the guilty one is not merely he who commits the crime, but those who create the darkness. So what I'm saying is that we can't continue to blame victims who are pushed into a corner for how they respond. But if we create a different kind of climate, then the hope is that people will act in a civil way and not an uncivil way. And that's what we have to keep working on, creating a different climate. We've got to move to a higher level. We're operating at the lowest level right now, and it is being precipitated at the highest levels of office. You know, I mean, remember, we have a president who told somebody to just go beat up someone during his campaigning. And that's the way he continues to do. He, he stokes, the. it's almost like a fire exists, exists. And instead of putting water on it to suppress the fire, you put lighter fluid on it to make it even more. And that's, his rhetoric does that. And it creates that climate all over. He's not talked about peace at all. And so it's no wonder everyone is acting crazy because you have leadership at the top that is not exhibiting strong, stable, uh, unifying leadership. Listen, when we come together, there is almost nothing that we cannot overcome. Well, how do I know this, you may ask? Because whenever we've had major uh, life-threatening crisis, like a tsunami, or like hurricanes and tornadoes, what we find in the American spirit is people come wanting to help. They don't ask you if you're a Democrat or if you're Republican or if you're independent. They don't ask you if you're gay or straight. They don't ask you if you're Christian or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or, or Jewish. They just want to help you get out of that tragic condition and help you move to another level. That's the behavior we exhibit in crisis whenever natural catastrophes occur. Americans come running. Some can't get there, so they'll spend money. But others will go right to the crisis and offer their help. That's that heart who would exist within the human spirit of Americans. And that's the part of what we have to constantly figure out. how do we elevate that all the time so that humankind treats humankind with humanity, with justice, with dignity, with respect. That's what my father would want. That's what my mother would want. That's what I want for our country and my daughter and generations yet unborn. We have to work for change. We have to pray for change. We have to be the change. And if love is not yet won, then the victory is not yet over.
0: I want to thank Martin Luther King III for joining me. I want to thank my producer, Grant Stern. You can follow him at Grant Stern. Thanks again for listening. Keep resisting. Let's sprint through that finish. Can you see it? I can Let's go.
1: Onward!